We are taking registrations today out in the lobby for our annual lakeside rafting trip. Man, head to the Zambezi River. I think they're still looking for those two guys. I don't know. There's no evidence that they've been found. But, uh, you know, it's, it's fun. You know, you go out and go rafting and you pay good money to do crazy stuff like that. It's, it's a little crazy. I had the chance to do that. Uh, I've had the chance to do that a few times. Years ago, I was the camp speaker on a river rafting high school trip. It was four days up on the Klamath River in Northern California, and it was amazing. It was beautiful. I hadn't been rafting before. It was my first time, and it was super exciting, especially when my guide fell out of the boat. (laughs) She grew up on the river. She knew every nook and cranny, and I couldn't figure out, why are you flying into that rock face first? I don't know why you're doing that. And then, of course, the high school kids in the raft turned and looked at me, like, what am I supposed to do? You guys start paddling. And so I did jump in her seat, and I grabbed the, the guide oar. She had taught me a few basics of guiding, and I st- started shouting out technical terms like, try hard, get us out of here. I think I said high side a few times, the big football player. Yeah, you too, get up there. We're going to flip over. And it seemed like it was about 10 to 15 minutes. That's the way I remember it. It's about 10 to 15 minutes we were in this white water. It was probably about 10 to 15 seconds. But it was, it, was, it was amazing just shooting through this rapid, and finally we were done, and we're off to the side in this little eddy, just resting, and we're pulling our guide back into the boat, and she's bruised and bloody, but she still had enough energy to say, let's lift our paddles in a victory cry, and we did, and it was, it was amazing, and that's how life is sometimes. It's like this river, and there's peaceful parts. There's parts of life where you're just kind of cruising with friends and you're enjoying it. And then there's whitewater moments. Whitewater moments are unpredictable. They kind of come out of nowhere sometimes. They're scary. You don't know what's going to happen. They're kind of filled with chaos. And sometimes after you've gone through a whitewater moment, you look back and you go, wow, that was quite the adventure. And maybe for some of you, if you are a person of faith, maybe your faith was just stretched at that point in your life. In fact, as you look back, maybe, maybe your faith broke for a while. You ever doubt God? You do know it's okay to doubt. To know for certain is not to have faith. To, to have faith is to also have doubts and to wrestle. Maybe you grew up in a stream of Christianity where you weren't allowed to do that. You had to have all the nice answers with a nice neat bow on them, and everything was kind of in a theological box. You do know it's okay to wrestle and to struggle and to wonder about God and to wonder about your faith and to even lose it for a while. It's the normal Christian life, actually. And that's a message for another time. But as we think about this idea of going through these whitewater moments, maybe that's you these days. Maybe you're in the middle of the washing machine right now and you're struggling and you're wondering, why God, why me? Right now, are you kidding me? How am I going to get out of this? Maybe you look back and your guide, God, is, you know, he's gone. He's out of the boat. Maybe you've fallen out of the boat and the water is up to here. You're just trying to catch your breath these days. And you can relate to the ancient psalmist who wrote, Deep calls to deep. From the very depths of my soul, I cry out to the depths of who you are, God. In the roar of your waterfall, all your waves and your breakers are sweeping over me. They are crashing over me right now. 
Whitewater moments are normal for all of us. All human beings of all times, of all people groups have experienced these moments. And so we're going to go into a series three weeks long called Whitewater. And if you've been with us for any period of time at Lakeside, you know since January we've been sort of methodically walking through this letter in the New Testament part of the Bible called Romans. It was written by the uh, ancient Apostle Paul. Apostle was his title. He was an official leader in the New Testament church, and his name was Paul. And he wrote a letter to this little church in the city of Rome about 2,000 years ago. He had actually never been there, but, but he knew about it. And this little Roman church had some things that they were struggling with. As you journey through the book of Romans, you start to unpack and see some of the things that they were struggling with. And really, there were two big things. One was that they were trying to figure out how to get along. Seems like a pretty human conflict, uh, or it seems like a pretty human problem to have conflict, right? If you know one other person, then you know that it's hard to get along, especially if that person is a little bit different than you or they see the world a little bit different than you see it. The other problem that they were having was their trust in God. They were struggling with their faith. And they were actually asking the question, is God faithful? Now, when the Roman church was born, it was almost all Jews these ancient people in ancient Israel who decided to follow Jesus, and we read about this in Acts chapter 2, the church is born, and there are people from all around the world there, and some of them went home, and they went home to Rome, and they started a little church there. And so ethnically speaking and culturally speaking, this little church in Rome was Jewish. And the power brokers and the influencers and the leaders were Jewish ethnically. And then something remarkable happened in the city of Rome in AD 49. The emperor Claudius decided to kick all of the Jews out of the city. It wasn't the first time that a Roman emperor had done that, and they weren't the only ethnic group that that happened to. Every once in a while, the Roman emperor would just decide, okay, you guys are out of here. And so they all had to leave the city. And what was happening during that time is the Gentiles or the non-Jews, kind of everybody else, were starting to flood into the church. They were, they were coming to know Jesus. They were believing in this Messiah, the Anointed One. And they were experiencing the transformational power of God. And so they were flooding into the church. And the ancient Jews were sort of trickling into the church, not as quickly. And a lot of them weren't so sure about this. Some were believing, but some were not. And then they were all gone. And so the Gentiles sort of took over when the Jews were asked to leave the city. And for about five years, the culture of that church began to change. And the leaders and the influencers and the power brokers were all Gentiles. Until about AD 54 when Claudius died, because when an emperor died, their edicts died as well. Nero took over, and he said, all the Jews can come back. And probably over the next several years, they started to come back into the city. And so you have this group, and you have this other group, these different cultures beginning to learn how to merge. And it wasn't easy. Can you imagine the conflicts? There were people that were wondering... Maybe God's done with Israel. Maybe he's done with those people, those chosen people. Yeah, we know about that story, but maybe it's our time now, and we can just put away all this stuff. We can forget about all of this stuff. If you were an ancient Israelite, you were wondering the same thing. God, did you mess up? 
Are, are you not faithful to your promise? We know about your promise. We know our story. We know how you rescued us out of Egypt. We know how you rescued us and you brought us back from exile in Babylon. And we have come to believe in Jesus. We know that you want to rescue us. But what's going on? The Gentiles are flooding into the church, and we are not. And so you begin to wonder, can we trust God? And we struggle with the same things. Can we trust God? If God messed up then, what if he messes up now? What if he messes up with you? If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 9. You can also pull it up on the U version on that app, and there's some seat Bibles around, too. I think we have the page number up there for you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we want to encourage you to go ahead and take that seat Bible. We'd love for you to read that. One of the most important theological beliefs of the Christian faith is that God is faithful. He's never going to let us down. He's a good, good father. And Paul, knowing the very real and deep pain of his fellow countrymen, the ancient Israelites, he, he knows what's happening in this church. And he turns from incredible joy. If you were here last week at the end of Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Pastor John is on the stage with a bullhorn and he's asking you, can anything separate us from the love of God? And you guys are saying, no, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this grand symphony that is the book of Romans reaches this crescendo, this high point, this point of joy, this point of certainty. And then there's a drop off. And at the beginning of chapter 9, as we get into the second half of the letter, Paul is in pain, and we're going to see his pain in the first few verses here. Look at verse 1. It says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. You can almost imagine because they probably only had one copy of this letter and the church is gathered together and they're wondering what this grand apostle Paul is going to say to them. What's going to happen? How is he going to help us? We're a people that are, are starting to argue and tear each other apart. How is he going to help us get around the table of Jesus together? How is he going to help us trust in God? And it's almost as if they're all sort of leaning forward and Paul says, hey, what I'm going to tell you right now, you can bank on this. So, so listen up, church. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing joy, or unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Do you sense Paul's pain here? The guy is in agony because his brothers and sisters, according to his ethnicity, Many of them are not trusting in Jesus. They're not experiencing his transformational love and power. And he's in pain about it. There are those who are separated. There are those who are cut off. And Paul would trade anything. If he could, he would trade anything so that they would know Jesus. When we read this with the story layer underneath in its context... This may be one of the most remarkable statements of what it means to love someone else with the love that God loves us with. 
Paul can't, but if he could, he would have been the one to die. He would have been the one to experience the depths of hell. He would trade everything, if he could, out of his love for his own people. I sometimes wonder how tear-stained the parchment was on this part of the letter. And if I'm honest, I sometimes wonder why my journal isn't as tear-stained. Who is on your heart today? Is there someone that you've been hoping for, that you've been praying for? Is there someone where you've realized that you have to play the long game with them? Because it doesn't seem like anything's changing. What kind of burden do you have on your life today? Maybe you're here because somebody invited you. Somebody's been praying for you. There was a group of 20-somethings that prayed for me for two years. Some of them wept because I kept on putting up the stop sign. Leave me alone. Maybe somebody's been praying for you. Maybe you're exploring faith and God has drawn you here this morning. God hasn't given up on you. God hasn't given up on that person that you've been praying for for so long. In fact, God's pursuing them. C.S. Lewis calls God the hound of heaven. He just keeps coming. And Paul needed this church to know that. He needed the Gentiles to know that God has not given up on Israel. He's pursuing them. He needed Israel to know that God hasn't given up on you. He's pursuing you. And I think we need to know that as well these days. And if you read on, Paul's gonna, he's going to list off a bunch of different ways, seven to be exact, different ways that ancient Israel was blessed And yet, they miss Jesus, so many of them. How do the chosen people miss it? They have the very scriptures. They have the prophets. They knew the story. They look back at their history. They saw the promises that God made. They saw the way that he came through. They saw their own disobedience. And they missed it, so many of them. How did that happen? Same way I missed it for most of my life. I grew up in church. I heard the stories. I knew the scriptures. And yet I missed it. It's the same way we all miss it. I was looking through an old yearbook recently. I have this 30th year reunion coming up, which makes me feel quite old. And I realized that I don't remember anybody. I don't know what's wrong with me. Like, you know, you look on Facebook. I go, I don't know. Did I go to high school with you? I don't know who you are. And I look it up in the the book. And it's like, I don't recognize any. Okay, I know that guy. But I don't recognize very many people. And I'm looking through this yearbook. And out of the back of the yearbook, this report falls out. And I pick it up, and it's actually a psychology report that I did when I was 17 years old. And I open it up, and I start reading it, and I'm laughing at myself. It's like, that's what I thought? That's so funny. 17-year-old Sean. And uh, looking back, and, and at one part in there, it said, um, it said how much I loved Jesus. I didn't know Jesus when I was 17. I knew about Jesus. But I didn't, I didn't know him. All of us can miss it. And one of the things that's easy to do is to look at God and go, well, maybe you messed up, God. Maybe you failed. 
And Paul says, God didn't fail. You missed it, but he didn't fail. And he goes on in verse 6, and he says exactly that. He said, it is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, which sounds very strange to us, but would have sounded very normal to a first century Hebrew. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. So he basically repeats himself. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And so again, here's the problem. Some ancient Jews are trusting in Jesus, and some are not. And Paul writes to them and says, exactly, Exactly, because it's never been about ethnicity. For any people group, it's always been about faith. What Paul begins to do here in this passage, and I can't read any more of the chapter to you, but you have it there, and you can read it through. But what you will discover as you read through is that Paul begins to do something that all great Jewish teachers did. He begins to tell the ancient Israelites and the Gentiles there in the church in Rome, he begins to tell them their story. It's one of the classic ways that the Hebrews did theology. In other words, it's one of the ways that they helped one another think correctly about God and think correctly about one another. Paul goes back and tells the story. In fact, in the book of Romans, he tells the story of Israel about five different times in five different ways. And here he starts all over again in chapter 9, and he's going to tell it all the way through chapter 11. And what you'll notice right away is that Paul starts listing off all of these names, Abraham, Isaac, He mentions Jacob and Esau and this guy named Pharaoh, this ruler of Egypt. And he'll mention all these different names and he starts to unpack the story. And he wants them to remember their story because it's one of the best ways to look back and go, oh, that's how God worked. Oh, maybe he actually is faithful to me. He really didn't let me down. I didn't feel him back there in the whitewater when I was alone and just wishing that somebody would pull me into the boat. But God really had me in the palm of his hand. And so he brings up Abraham. Paul's already talked about Abraham back in chapter 4. He says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so Abraham actually by this time had become a symbol of faith. He was known as the father of faith. Jesus got into arguments with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, all about this. They said, well, we are Abraham's children. And Jesus said, well, that's really cool. I can make Abraham's children pop up out of these rocks you see on the ground here. It's never been about ethnicity. It's been about trusting in God. It's been about faith. Now, Mr. Abraham was a good guy for all we know, but he, he also didn't do so well some of the times. There was two times where he basically got his wife uh, given into a harem. I mean, this is a guy that, that was timid and he was afraid and he didn't always trust in God. In fact, him and his wife Sarah got together because God had promised them a child and they couldn't have a child. And now they were really old. They had never had a child. But God said, you're going to have one. And Sarah sort of laughed, and, which makes it funny because Isaac's name, the baby that ended up being born, his name means laughter. And they, they just they had a hard time believing this. I mean, wouldn't you have a hard time believing this? Don't you have a hard time sometimes trusting in God? 
But they didn't see the promise fulfilled the next day or the next week or the next year. In fact, it was years. And it's like, come on, God, when are you going to come through for us? And so Sarah says, hey, well, I got this maidservant here, Abraham. Why don't you just go sleep with her and we'll get God's show on the road. Let's get on with this promise thing. Let's get on with this blessing thing. And so they did. But God's like, nope, that's not what I'm going to do. And years later, Isaac shows up. And the promise is fulfilled. And so Abraham had come to represent faith. And Isaac had come to represent God's faithfulness to his covenant or his faithfulness to his promise. And you see Paul reminding this young church in Romans that it's about faith and it's about trusting in God's promise as we walk in tandem with him. And then there's other names as well. You hear about the twins, Esau and Jacob. They are the uh, sons of Isaac, the grandsons of Abraham. And God does something remarkable when he talks about these twins before they'll ever be born. He says the older is going to serve the younger. And in the ancient Near East, that never happened. The oldest male child had all the rights and privileges. They got more inheritance than everybody else. They were the ones that were calling the shots. They were the ones that were in charge. And God does this reversal, almost as if to say, I'm going to make my plan come true. And it's not going to depend on human stuff. It's going to depend on me. And Esau does something that I will never understand. Esau loves lentil soup. I don't understand that guy. And so he sells his birthright for a bowl of soup. And I don't get it. I don't know why the story goes that way. But down through the ages, Esau and Jacob, just like Abraham and Isaac, had come to represent two major things. And by the first century, Jacob Jacob represents this idea of living out humanity in a way that was following after God. We might today call it the Jesus humanity. And Esau represented a whole different type of humanity. He he represented a broken type of humanity, one that said no to God, and I want to kind of do things my own way. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1. There is a type of being human that is actually dehumanizing. And everything starts to unravel, and we see him talking about that in Romans chapter 1. Now, for all we know, Mr. Jacob and Mr. Esau, maybe they were both good guys. We know that Jacob had some struggles. I mean, he had some major problems. The word word Jacob, the name Jacob, means deceiver, and he was a deceiver. For all we know, Esau was a better guy individually than Jacob was. But this is not about Mr. Esau and Mr. Jacob. It's about what they represent. And here's the catch. These two humanities, the Jesus humanity and the opposite humanity, each of those humanities runs right down the middle of each of us. This is what Paul is wrestling with in Romans chapter 7. He's struggling and he's frustrated and he's saying, man, the things that I don't want to do, I just find myself doing them. And I don't know why. Why do I keep on doing the things that I don't want to do? Well, have you ever felt like that? And then he says, but the things that I really want to do, the things I should do, the things that are life-giving, I don't find myself doing them. And he gets to the end of chapter 7, and it's like he's struggling so much, and he just screams out, wretched man am I. Wretched man am I. Who will save me? From this body of death. 
And then he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Paul is taking this ancient Roman church methodically through the story of Israel so that they will see the faithfulness of God over and over and over again because they need it now or they're going to rip each other apart. We see it in our world today. We see people from different cultures ripping each other apart, from people with different political views ripping each other apart. And the question has always been, how do we come around the table of Jesus? It's Jesus who united them 2,000 years ago. It's Jesus who unites us now. As he tells this story, one of the things that you'll read in the chapter is it'll say, God hated Esau and he loved Jacob. You see, God, God wouldn't be holy and just if he didn't hate one type of humanity, the type of humanity that actually destroys us. He hates a particular way of being human and he loves another way of being human. And we all wrestle with both of those. And then later on in the, in, in the chapter, you'll, you'll hear this language about potter and clay and shaping. And, and, and some people were wondering, well, well, God, you set things up to work this way, so maybe it's your fault that I'm shaped like this. Maybe it's your fault that I live out this type of humanity that's no good. Maybe it's your fault that I'm alone in the river and nobody's pulling me into the boat. And that's one of our human tendencies is to, is to blame and Paul comes around again and it's like, yeah, you, you just can't blame God. He's never going to let you down. He is a good, good father. You see, when we live in to a particular type of humanity, it shapes us. When we live in to that humanity that says no to God, that unravels everything, that causes brokenness between us and God, us and each other, that causes a brokenness between us and ourselves, it shapes us. And the longer you do it, the more you get shaped by it. And then the shaping begins to harden. This is what happened to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said no. I mean, how many opportunities did Pharaoh get? Moses came again and again and again and again, and the things that he saw were miraculous, and he kept on saying no, and his heart kept on growing hard, and that was on Pharaoh, not on God. But if we live into the Jesus humanity, that will shape us as well. That will form our life into something beautiful. We learned in the last chapter, in chapter 8, that God made us for glory. Sounds pretty cool. What does that even mean? God made us for glory. I believe that God made us to bring love, justice, and beauty into the world. This is the glory of God. That there would be love, justice, and beauty in our world. That we would be a people through whom God would bring his glory, his love, his justice, and his beauty into the world. We were made for glory. See, God's plan is to work through a good humanity, and he's not going to a plan B. And he's not scrapping his plan. He's redeeming it. He's rescuing it. We are a part of that plan. We get to participate with God. He's going down the river with us in our lives, white water and all. We are shaped by how we live and what we give ourselves to. 
And so let me give you just three simple takeaways from this passage. The first one is this, as we've been saying it, God is faithful no matter what. God loves you no matter what, and he's faithful no matter what. And here's the catch. God is faithful even when you're not faithful to him. One of my favorite verses is in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Timothy is one of Paul's protégés, and he's become the pastor of this church in Ephesus. And he's timid, and he's shy, and he's struggling. There's conflict in the church. And he's sick, and so you know what it's like when you get physically sick and you're kind of not on your game. And Paul writes to him to encourage them, and he says, even when you are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot disown himself. He cannot deny his own character. He is just faithful and true. In Romans chapter 3, Paul talked about this. He said, just because some of the ancient Israelites are saying no to God, will their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? And Paul says, Absolutely not. God's faithful and true no matter what. God is faithful. That's number one. Here's number two. I want to encourage you today to engage the growth process. This is part of what Paul's doing with this ancient church. He wants them to grow up. He wants them to mature. Yes, he wants them to get along around the table of Jesus, and that's painful and difficult. It involves conflict resolution. It involves humility. It involves knowing how you've hurt somebody else and saying, I'm sorry. It involves believing the best about one another. It involves engaging your own heart, your own emotions, your own brokenness, and saying, God, I want to grow. So let me encourage you, if you've never thought about joining a grow group, one of our small groups here at Lakeside Church, come and investigate at the dessert on the 30th. Come and check it out. I don't think you always have to be in a small group. Again, I'm not into boxes. Okay, you always got to be doing that or you're doing something wrong. Sometimes you need to get out of a small group and have some solitude and take a breath. But maybe, there's a, maybe it's time for you to, to try it again or try it for the first time. I want to encourage you to think about joining a small group this fall. And then number three is something that we've been saying for the last year here at Lakeside. And it's find the pain and be the hope. In about a month, Pastor Brad and Pastor John and myself are going to have a weekend here with all of you called Vision Weekend, and we're going to talk about some of the things that we believe God is getting us ready for this next year. A year ago, we started talking about the idea of find the pain and be the hope, and I think Pastor John was the first one to say it up in this cabin where the three of us were together, and we were talking about the pain is in the family and the hope is in the church, and find the pain. And I, I thought, oh man, that's, that's going to change the paradigm through which I see everybody in my life. And it has. But here's the catch. Here's the thing that's interesting that I didn't predict. It's not that difficult to find the pain. All you need to do is sit down and start having a conversation with somebody, and eventually you will see the pain in their life. You know what's really hard? is to know how to be the hope. And so we're going to be unpacking some ways. One of our desires this year is that more and more and more we would equip one another to be the hope, to be the hope in your marriage, to be the hope to your kiddos, to be the hope with those coaches that you coach with, with those people that you work with in your neighborhood, wherever it might be, that we would be a people that others look at and go, man, how do those people get along with one another? Why do they live the way that they live? And there will be opportunity after opportunity after opportunity 
to be hope to somebody else who is in pain. You know, my favorite part of the rafting trip all those years ago wasn't the white water. It wasn't the calm water. It wasn't being out in the wilderness, which was amazing, the beauty of it all. My favorite part came at the very end when I saw tons and tons of high school students and actually adult leaders and the support crew that was taking us down the river and cooking all of our meals and doing all that. When I saw them step forward and say, you know what? I need to give Jesus a chance. You know what? I need to I need to take another chance on Jesus. I need to come back home to Jesus. And I don't know where you're at today. Maybe maybe you've never crossed that line of faith. Sometimes we talk about it like crossing the line of faith or trusting in Jesus and on the back of your lakeside life we have this thing called the ABCs of faith. But I I, I think sometimes you can also just talk to God in your own words. So I'm going to pray in a minute, and maybe you just want to talk to God. Maybe you want to say, God, man, pull me into the boat. Help me out here. Rescue me. Maybe you want to talk to God and say, God, I I don't feel you right now. I know that I'm supposed to believe that you're there, but I'm struggling, and you need to hear God say, that's okay. I'm a good, good father to you, no matter what you've experienced in this life, and I will never let you down. And so I, as I pray, you can pray. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thanks so much for your faithfulness. God, thanks so much for your scripture that was so relevant 2,000 years ago and is still is today. God, my prayer is that we would live in to the type of humanity that you want us to live into. God, that we would walk with you and that we would trust in you, that we would come clean with our struggles and our doubts about you. And in the end, Lord, that we would be able to sing that song from the heart, never going to let me down. God, for those here in the auditorium this morning, for our friends over in the family room, I pray that that, God, you would just draw people to yourself this morning. You know where every heart is. You know the burden of every soul. And I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would do what only you can do and that you would bring peace and that you would bring joy and that you would bring healing and that you would bring conviction, that you would bring direction. May you have your way. And we'll be careful to thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.